It is a story that feels like it belongs in a film, Raiders of the Lost Ark or National Treasure, something like that. It involves an adventurer and Egyptian mummies. But this story, it actually happened. It is the origin of the Book of Abraham. Carrie Molstein is a professor and former associate chair of the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. He has taught in the history department of three universities and has been part of award-winning history publications. He received his bachelor's degree in psychology with a Hebrew minor from BYU, his master's in ancient Near Eastern studies from BYU, and his PhD from UCLA in Egyptology. He is also the director of the BYU Egypt Excavation Project. He is the author of multiple books, including his most recent releases, Let's Talk About the Book of Abraham and Learning to Love Isaiah. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so thrilled to have Carrie Muelstein on the line with me today. Carrie, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, I have been looking forward to this to this interview so much. I have read your book, Let's Talk About the Book of Abraham, which is fantastic. And I recommend to listeners because I think despite the fact that it's a small book, we will probably only scratch the surface of everything that you cover in there today. But I wanted to to start today's conversation by talking a little bit more about you and your background, if that's okay. You have a PhD in Egyptology from UCLA. How did you initially become interested in that? And what role did your faith play in, in that choice to study that? Uh, great question. Uh, thanks for asking that, Morgan. So we don't want to go too far back in my history, but at, at some point I decided uh, that I'd like to teach seminary and institute. And then I decided, actually, I love researching as much as teaching. So I'd like to teach at the collegiate level. And uh, and initially I was going into biblical studies, uh, especially Hebrew Bible. And so my master's is in uh, ancient research studies, but specifically biblical Hebrew. And I was really pushing forward in that. And I loved it. I, I still absolutely love that uh, world at, at UCLA. My secondary emphasis was Hebrew language and literature. I, I just I still research and write a ton on that and teach that. I love it. But I also got kind of tired of some of the, I guess, the, the rancor that happens in biblical studies between people who believe that nothing is true in the Bible and people who think every single comma is true and so on, right? And these arguments, uh, and I, it's ironic that instead of the Book of Abraham studies has just as much rancor, but I didn't realize <laughs> I was going to do Book of Abraham stuff at the time. At the same time, as I was uh, coming to understand this, I, I thought, and studying the Hebrew Bible, I thought, I, you know, symbolism, and we'll probably talk about this more later, but symbolism is, is in many ways their primary language, even more so than Hebrew. They really speak in the world of symbolism. So I just kind of dedicated myself to trying to understand symbols. And it turns out no one uses symbols as much or as masterfully as the Egyptians. So as I started to study Egyptian symbolism, I just fell in love with it. I was I was taking hook, line, and sinker with uh, studying ancient Egypt. And so even while I was doing a master's in biblical Hebrew, I started studying as much as I could about ancient Egypt and was just so drawn into that. 
And that just took me into applying to programs that there aren't very many programs where you can get a PhD in Egyptology, but I applied to those programs, got accepted to several, but found the person that I really, really wanted to study with at UCLA and had a fantastic, absolutely fantastic experience there. And so my my faith played a role in that it was because I wanted to understand my faith better that I was studying the Bible and wanted to understand my faith better that I wanted to understand symbolism. I initially did not want to study, do Book of Abraham stuff. I wanted to stay away from that, if at all possible, because I knew it was kind of cantankerous. But I, I, after a while, people asked me so many questions, I thought, well, I need to be able to answer these questions and not look stupid. So I started to study that and found that there were a lot of people with genuine questions that really wanted to know and I wanted to help them. And I found it pretty fascinating as well. So while I had been studying the period that would tie in with the Exodus period in the Bible, kind of shifted uh, as well to studying the period of Abraham, the Middle Kingdom, which is in Egypt, which is a period I, I loved anyway. And so it just kind of, I didn't really get into Book of Abraham stuff until I was done with my PhD, to be honest. I was familiar with a couple of the issues. Turns out my dissertation does tie into it. And I was kind of aware of that. I wasn't aware very much of how much because I really wasn't in a book of Abraham studies at the time. And it was only after that, probably about five years after I got done with my uh, PhD that I uh, I did my first uh, real research and publishing on the book of Abraham. So that came a little bit later. Okay. So I, have and I guess couple... I should also mention if it's all right yeah. that I... I uh, I was blessed, really blessed to be able to study very intensely, both with a philologist, so that's someone who studies language and, and text, and an archaeologist. And so that's allowed me to do studies on languages and text, but I also direct an excavation in Egypt. So I'm able to, and not that many people do, but I'm able to have a foot fairly firmly planted in both the archaeological and the textual world. And that's so that's neat. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I have a couple of follow up questions based on what you just said. First question is, you mentioned, you know, the frustrations regarding people's take on the historicity of the Bible. What is your take on the historicity of our scripture? Great question. And and I'll say it's not so much with their having different takes. I don't care if people have different viewpoints. It's when they get so cantankerous and, and uh, full of rancor. I'm just, I'm not a, I, I stand up for what I think should be stood up for, but I am not really into contention and uh, arguing and finally, I just don't enjoy that. I think it gets silly. So right. Uh, that's the part that I didn't like. And unfortunately, there are people that in almost any discipline that really get into that. I thought I could uh, get away from it. It turns out you can't. There are always people like that. But um, the disagreements and, and uh, hashing things out, that I love. Right? I love debate. I love all this stuff. But getting nasty, I don't love. When, it turn, when we're going to talk about historicity, so I think there is no doubt, and I can say this both from what I've learned from Revelation and what I've learned academically using my intellectual ability and my academic training, no doubt that that the scriptures as we have them are, the historicity is real, that they are historical, they are authentic, and so on. Now, does that mean every single thing in them? Probably not. Right? If you were going to ask me, I suspect that there's a lot more time between Noah and Abraham than what is portrayed in, in the Bible. And I don't think that's because the Bible is trying to be disingenuous. I think it's because they're actually not trying to convey history. They're trying to convey theology. And they do that primarily via symbolism, as I talked about earlier. And so if symbolism, say a 7,000 year period, does carry a set of symbols, 
And that's their primary goal is to teach what that set of symbols gives us, not to give us an accurate count of years, which they probably weren't capable of doing anyway. And they didn't have the mindset to do. We have a very different mindset now than they did. So they don't have the mindset that, well, we have to account for every year and they, they give accurate mind, you know, year spans and so on. I think their mindset was, uh, what are we trying to teach? Oh, this? Well, and these symbols uh, teach that. Wonderful. Let's let's use that. So uh, that doesn't mean that it's not historical, but it, it means we just need to be better at looking at things from their viewpoint rather than our viewpoint. But I think absolute historicity, Book of Abraham, Book of Mormon, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, these are real stories from real people in real places. And I can tell it from ancient texts. I can tell it from archaeology, from all sorts of things. It's The evidence is overwhelming, in my opinion. We can quibble a little bit about dates and that kind of thing, but the evidence is, is overwhelming. Right. Fascinating. Okay. My other question and follow-up is related to this use of symbols. So this year in Come Follow Me, we're studying the Old Testament it is a unique book in that I think of all scripture, it seems to have the most symbolism. Yeah. Um, why would you say that it's so important for us to understand that up front? And how can actually seeking to understand symbolism help us today? And also, if you have any thoughts on resources that would be helpful as people are trying to understand that, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to share all of that. I, I really have this passion this year to try and help people understand the Old Testament. We've had such a great experience with Come, Follow Me so far. My sense is that members of the church are just really into the scriptures more than we ever have been before. And and I don't want the Old Testament year to be the year we hit the brakes and like, oh, I'm scared of that. Don't get that and run away. So uh, right. I'm trying to help people understand this, and I'm grateful for this opportunity. And when I talk about this, and I've done firesides and so on, and I can tell you some of those resources in a minute, and um, I've been working for years on a, a book uh, called Keys to Understanding the Old Testament. And I haven't started writing it yet, but what I mean by working for years is for probably 20 years, I've been asking my students and others, what are the things that have helped you most to understand the Old Testament? And, and what are the things that are most difficult? And I just keep compiling this list that will be a many year list that uh, I'm, I'm slowly shaping into something that will help people. But uh, as I do that, at the top of that list is really always the question you asked, understanding symbols. We need to understand when the scriptures say that God speaks to people in their own language and according to their own understanding, that doesn't just mean as he's speaking in, in Portuguese or French or English. He's saying, according to their own understanding, so we expect to be spoken to in kind of a post-scientific uh, revolution, right, enlightenment way. They spoke in terms of symbols, and that's how they expected to be spoken to, and that's how God spoke to them. Orson F. Whitney once said, God speaks or teaches through symbols. It's his favorite method of teaching, and I think that's absolutely true for a whole bunch of reasons. We don't have time to go into all of the why now. But uh, he teaches through symbols and for them, most especially symbolic action. So when we think of symbols, we think of, oh, with, you know, on the dollar bill, there's a pyramid with an eye or there's a symbol. Right. And that's true. But symbolic action was the most important thing to them, how you did something. So a number of the prophecies the Old Testament prophets made were acted out. Uh, they were actions that they went through. Symbolic action is everywhere in the Old Testament. And they expect it's not enough to hear something from God just in form of precept. There has to be a symbolic action attached to that, whether that's a certain kind of sacrifice, 
whether that's what you do as you move through the temple, whether that's ritual washings and anointings, whether that is someone being stricken with leprosy, whatever it is, there will always be a symbolic action component of this. That's what spoke to them. And if we will attune ourselves to that, it will speak to us as well. And so I I think that's really, really huge. So uh, looking for both symbols and symbolic action. And a lot of things that happen, again, back to your historicity question, they really happen. Like, I believe the Exodus really happened. Are the numbers correct in there? Yeah, probably larger numbers than are are accurate. Uh, Is it a more complicated story with a lot more nuances and a lot more things going on than what we got? Absolutely. That's true of any story that we tell, right? We don't uh, give every nuance and, and so on. But I think it really happened. But I think it happened in a way that there are a tremendous amount of symbols behind it, that that story actually teaches us through the actions of what happened. And it would have spoken even more to them because they were attuned to those symbols a little bit more than we are. So if we're going to think of resources, uh, actually, interesting, you'd ask me today, just this morning, I thought, you know, for the next Old Testament year, I'm going to spend the next uh, three years writing a book on symbols of the Old Testament and the keys of the Old Testament. Those are two books I'm, I'm working on. We'll see if they get done in four years, but because I have 17 other things I'm working, uh, books I'm working on as well. But one thing that I'm trying to do, uh, I just did a fireside actually for my own ward on keys to understanding the Old Testament, where I talk about symbols and symbolic action more in depth. I posted that on my own podcast and YouTube channel. So it's called The Scriptures Are Real. You can find it on uh, you know Spotify and uh, Apple and whatever else in YouTube channel. The scriptures are real. There's a fireside that I did on understanding the the uh, Old Testament. Talk about symbols more in depth there. I've got a website that I've created. It's a it's it's a hokey website because I'm not a web designer. I'm a I'm a researcher, not a web designer. But I just made this thing, and it, so it's it's it looks bad, but it's got tons and tons of resources on there. It's called outofthedust.org. And you can find on there a page for understanding the Abrahamic covenant, a page for understanding Isaiah, a page for just resources and aids for understanding the Old Testament. Uh, On there, I put up, you know, here's an article that has something about symbols, uh, or uh, I've got videos that I've made to help you understand different symbols. When we get to Isaiah, I'll have tons of little videos about this symbol, that symbol, this symbol, that symbol, and uh, and so on. It also has a page for podcasts. So I'm trying to, to make those kinds of things available to people. Well, I think that's wonderful. So it's out of the dust.org. Yes. Okay, perfect. Okay. Don't judge my web building abilities. Just I will be not. charitable in that way. Okay. I will uh I'll just come for the information. Sounds good. Okay. So based on based on that answer, I, I have a, a couple of other follow-up questions. One, you mentioned Isaiah, and I think mm-hmm. it's important to mention that you also have a commentary coming out about Isaiah. Looking ahead. It's actually out now. Oh, it is. Okay. What is yeah. the name of that? It's called Learning to Love Isaiah, a guide and commentary. And it's got the King James Version text in one column and then my commentary in, in another column. So you can just read it as you go along with lots of okay. boxes like here's historical things. Here's how these themes fit together with other chapters. Here's how it ties in with the Book of Mormon and that kind of a thing. Uh, I think it's the largest uh, and and uh, most comprehensive LDS commentary that that we have so far, where I've honestly tried to make sure that every verse in Isaiah is e- explained uh, in some way, not every explanation that could be possible, but in some way. So that's amazing. So looking ahead to studying Isaiah, because I think Isaiah is daunting. 
Yeah. At least for me. So as we look ahead for somebody that has studied it as much as you have, what would you say are the biggest things we are meant to take away from Isaiah or that the Lord would hope we would take away from Isaiah? Uh, I'm, I'm happy to answer that question. I'll say in the, what's true of Isaiah is true of the Old Testament as a whole in a couple okay. of ways. One, and that's why I've got this commentary coming out now again. I feel like um, the Old Testament is is what people are most afraid of in our books of Scripture, and Isaiah is what they're most afraid of uh, overall. And that's frustrating to people because they know the Old Testament is important, and Christ told us to study Isaiah. Uh, you get to the Book of Mormon, and you're cruising along, and then you hit Isaiah, and then people just feel guilty and frustrated. And that's what we're, I'm trying to end, right? We just want to get rid of that. So have a great experience with all of these things. And, and so hopefully between all the stuff I've been doing in this book, we can help people have their best Isaiah experience and their best Old Testament experience ever. So in, in, and, and they mirror each other. Isaiah is really a microcosm of the whole Old Testament. So greatest messages are uh, this, that God will never stop working and helping his people. And that if they are willing to make and do their best to keep a covenant and keep trying again after they've messed up, that they will, that God will save them. He'll keep working with them, keep giving them another chance and he will save them. So I, ironically, and I know that people are going to say, well, that's weird, but I believe it's absolutely true. I think it's accurate. You just have to learn how to, to understand this. I think you see God's mercy and love and hope in the Old Testament more than any other book of scripture. It's really strong in, in there. Most people think, oh, wrathy Old Testament. I, that's because they didn't keep reading the next part of the story, right? God humbled them and then he gave them another chance. And uh, I think that's true of Isaiah as well. Uh, he has all sorts of warnings, but then he always holds out this little bit of hope at the end. So I, I guess if we're uh, talking, this is turned into me doing shameless plugs kind of session, but <laughs> I actually wrote a book. The first book I ever wrote, which is still one of my favorite books, or I think it's probably my favorite thing I ever wrote, was about seeing God's mercy and love in the Old Testament. It's out of print now, except for as a, an electronic version, but it's called Return Unto Me. And it's just a short, little readable book that I hope helps people see the message of mercy and hope in the Old Testament that is the message of Isaiah as well. And again, covenant and symbolism are what will help you get the Old Testament in general. So I've also written a book on the covenant, but anyway, uh, symbolism, that's what will help you get out of the Old Testament and Isaiah. Those are uh, some of the main keys. Okay, so I think this is so interesting because I think a lot of people think of the God of the Old Testament as maybe being different than the God that we read about in the New Testament or in the Book of Mormon. And and so I think that it's good to focus on the fact that it is the same God and, yeah. and He has the same characteristics. Carrie, I wanted to ask you, as we begin a study of the Old Testament and of portions of the Pearl of Great Price, specifically Moses mm-hmm. and Abraham, what other advice do you have for us in understanding and what do you think could fundamentally change our study this year and make all the difference in what we take away? So uh, of those, the things that I think make the biggest difference, we've already mentioned several symbolism, uh, looking for the whole story. So you see God's mercy and love. uh, and, And probably the last one is to really understand the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the primary theme uh, of the Old Testament. And and let's put it this way, the Abrahamic covenant and how God, uh, well, really how Christ saves us if we are part of that covenant. 
right? So Christ and the Abrahamic covenant are the primary theme of all books of scripture, it turns out, but especially the Old Testament. And when you come to understand what that covenant is and how to recognize it, then you'll be able to start to see it all over in the Old Testament better. You'll start to identify with it as covenant holders. We are part of the Abrahamic covenant. We enter, enter into it at baptism. Another name for it is the new and everlasting covenant. It's it's the covenant we're all part of. And so if you just come to be familiar enough with it that you start to recognize that prophets are talking about it all the time and, and you self-identify because, oh, you're part of this covenant, then not only do you understand but, uh, the scriptures more, but they come to life for you more. They seem more applicable to you. So I'd say so. those are some of the greatest keys to understanding the Old Testament. Perfect. Okay, I want to shift a little bit to the book of Abraham specifically. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest takeaway from your book, aside from that, it's a fascinating story and learning about all the different theories was so interesting. One of the biggest things was to be okay with ambiguity um, because there's a lot that we don't know. Why would you say that the book of Abraham teaches us that we need to be okay with that? So it's a good question, and it does in a couple of ways, both through the text and through the story around the book of Abraham. So maybe let me put it this way. I think one of the greatest keys to being a good scholar, and I'll also say one of the greatest keys to being a good disciple, is a good dose of humility. To just recognize what we're capable of, what we're not capable of, and be okay with that. Uh, some people, when they realize what we're not capable of, start to feel anxious or hopeless and so on. We don't need to be capable of all of that, either as a disciple or a scholar. Just have patience. It's all going to work out. God's going to make it all work out. But we need to be aware of what we uh, can and can't do with our own abilities and the information that we have as a scholar or a disciple. So the text of the book of Abraham, I think, teaches us that in terms of being a disciple. So Abraham is not going to survive without God's help in chapter one. He's not going to, to have peace or a place to live or anything else in chapter one and two without God's help, but God brings him uh, where he needs to be. He's not going to survive in Egypt without God's help, but God helps him there. Um, he's not going to be able to, to approach God or receive exaltation without God's help. And so God gives him the covenant, which is chapter two. Chapter three is all about how God is so much more glorious than we are. Well, that's the first half of chapter three, but then, we get to the second half, which is, well, God is giving us an opportunity to join him there, right? So it's always about humility and then about how God will take care of it. He'll make it work for us. So that's the kind of the disciple theme that's in the text of the book of Abraham. And so hopefully uh, we learn to be okay with ambiguity and with uh, understanding that there are some things we're capable of doing and capable of knowing, and there's some things that we're not, but we will be eventually. That's that's kind of that discipleship textual teaching from the book of Abraham. And it applies every bit as much to scholarship about the book of Abraham and especially about uh, scholarship in terms of what is the book of Abraham? How did we get it? Uh, what is Joseph Smith's role? Is he an inspired prophet or not? Because it turns out for really every question that I would like to really answer, we don't have enough data to fully answer it. Uh, using our intellectual and academic abilities. There's just not enough information for almost, I'm sure it's an exaggeration to say every question, but really right now I'm having a hard time thinking of one where I feel like, oh yeah, we can answer that, done deal. We just don't have enough data. 
And that's part of why, and in the book, I go into this more in depth, but this idea that, you know, we, we should pursue learning through all avenues available, including our, our mind and revelation. But it turns out with limited ability to reason and limited data or information, we can't make a lot of conclusions using that method that we can using the revelatory method because God does know and he does have that ability and he can reveal it to us. He can tell us and then we know, even though we may not understand all the details of how we get there, right? So, uh, but that's uh, most people who have had struggles with the book of Abraham uh, have had those struggles because someone is telling them that this or this is true, which means that this and this can't be true. And when they're saying that, they are being misleading. They don't have enough information to make the conclusions. If they were being honest and clear and fully understood the issues, they would have to say, we don't have enough information to really make a conclusion on that. But that's not what they say. They say the opposite, and it's it's misleading and disingenuous. I think most of them do it unknowingly. They've been told by someone else, and they just believe what they've been told and so on. But to be honest, we just need to have a little bit more humility as scholars. And the best scholars are humble and will say, okay, we don't know that. Oh, what I thought before is wrong. And the worst scholars are sure all the time. But uh, that that dose of humility and being, as you said, being okay with ambiguity, being okay with not knowing is part of this life. And it's part of what drives us to trust in God, which is what we need, because there's no way to be exalted with our own abilities. We have to learn to trust in God and that he has the capacity to make up our differences. And so ambiguity and uh, is an essential part of the gospel. It, we're going to find it in every element because God is trying to help us come to just rely on him. Perfect. I, I think that this is all so, so fascinating because, like you said, you have to be okay with not knowing. And I really love in the book, the way that you present it with, there are a couple of places where you say, because we don't know, we have to make a hypothesis. And then you present like, okay, let's say this were the hypothesis that we were exploring. Then we we build out from there. One of the things that's interesting is that the reason... So I think one reason people get get kind of caught up in this is because we don't know what Joseph Smith meant or what firsthand witnesses meant when saying that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham. And the thing that's interesting to me about this is that the reason that people get caught up in it is, you know, the book of Mormon, we don't have the record of the book of Mormon. Whereas with the book of Abraham, we have these remnants of papyrus that were part of the story, but, but also recognizing that the long scroll got burned in the Chicago fire, which is what are the odds of that? Um, but, but because of that, we, we get fixated on this and it can be a stumbling block for people, I think. So I wondered if you could, if we could start by, having you just quickly give listeners a little recap of the events that we know leading up to Joseph Smith having this papyrus and these mummies. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think this is one of the most interesting and fascinating stories out there. One of the 
whole bunch of books I told you I'm working on is, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm actively working on this one, but it's just going to be a long process is to write a really detailed story from Abraham's day to the day of the owner of the, the ancient owner of the papyrus in like 200 BC through Napoleon and the adventurers in Egypt, all the way up to our day, you know, with the Nibley and everyone else in there. I mean, they're just fascinating, just Fascinating, like Indiana fascinating Jones stories. type stuff. There, there is some. Uh, I mean, so some of the characters involved with this. So I, let's let's do that part. So there was an ancient owner that owned these papyri, and, and they're buried with him. And the, that's about 200 BC. And then we don't get back to the story until about 1800 BC. In the meantime, you've had Islam come through, and then you've got the Ottoman Empire controlling Egypt, and then Napoleon invades, and then the British ally with the Ottomans to kick the French out because the British and the French are always trying to have this kind of a contest. But that opens Egypt up to Western explorers. And so you get a couple of Italians that end up working for the French government. Uh, they can't go back to Italy because they supported Napoleon, and that's not very popular at the time and so on. So they, they're staying in um, Egypt working, and then they have a while where they're not employed by the French government, and then they are again and so on. During that time, they're not employed. Um, they're sending stuff out, uh, just selling it on their own. Uh, and one of these is a fellow named Antonio Leblo, who, yeah, if you're, I mean, uh, Indiana Jones in some of the, the, the less good ways. I mean, he's an adventurer. There are stories of him that he and, and other people that are pulling guns on each other, trying to, uh, establish who gets to have this, uh, antiquity to sell or not. And, uh, stories of him using poison and all sorts of stuff. He may not be the most savory character ever, but he's getting <laughs> his stuff done. And so, uh, there, there's some pretty adventurous stories. And he ends up with a collection of mummies and papyri. And it's not clear whether he found them himself. I think it's probably even more likely that the locals, we know that lots of locals were out digging uh, and bringing stuff to him to sell to him. They knew he'd pay them. And so this is a source of income for them. So anyway, however he comes up with this, he has a collection of mummies and papyri that he is uh, selling. He dies before they're sold. His widow arranges for a shipping company to ship them to the U.S. to sell them there. They're the first collection of Egyptian antiquities of that size to go to the U.S. There being it's 11 mummies and several a couple rolls and several fragments of papyri. And they just are traveling around the country being shown in hotel lobbies and charging people 25 cents to see them. Uh, eventually, they start to sell off the mummies. They get down to four mummies and, and two rolls and some fragments. And they come to Kirtland, Ohio, and, and Joseph Smith wants to buy the, the papyri rolls. He feels impressed that he should buy them. He's been shown them. He's looked at them. He immediately starts translating them by one account as soon as he sees them. And by another account, he does more the first night. And then he wants to buy them. So the, the owners, or at least their representative, won't uh, sell the mummies or the papyri separate from the mummies. So Joseph Smith buys four mummies, uh, two rolls, and a bunch of fragments of papyrus. And that's when he starts really translating and, and uh, translates the book of Abraham. So that's the short version of that story, but it's a fun one. And they're all, the story goes on from there, all sorts of fun stuff, people trying to steal the mummies and subterfuge and hiding them under girls' beds and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's an interesting thing. So. so remind me again, where was the, how did the long roll end up getting burned in the Chicago fire. Okay, so let's take that second part of the story. Okay. So Joseph uh, acquires them and starts translating in July of 1835 in Kirtland, Ohio. Um, there are some adventurous elements to the papyri and mummies getting to Missouri and then to Illinois, but they end up in Nauvoo. So when they're in Nauvoo, he, he publishes them in the church's newspaper and he does at least some form of translation on them. It's not clear whether he actually translates 
more of the book of Abraham there, or if he's revising uh, what he's already translated in an inspired way and also uh, in, uh, doing Hebrew translation that he inserts into the, the book of Abraham, he certainly does that. So it's not clear exactly what's going on in terms of translation there, but he publishes it, always wants to publish more, promises he'll publish more, but never does get around to it. Stuff happens in Joseph Smith's life. He he has all sorts of things going on for him. And then when he dies, his mother, Lucy Mack Smith, who had, uh, since they came to Illinois, been supporting herself by charging people to see the antiquities, she keeps doing that. Uh, When she dies, Emma Smith sells them to a person named Abel Combs. And Abel Combs sells the mummies, or at least two mummies. We don't know what happened to the other two mummies. We, we have two mummies. We don't know where they went. So I'd like to find that out. But anyway, I told you there are so many things we'd like to learn more about. But he sells the two rolls and two mummies to the St. Louis Museum. And the St. Louis Museum shows them for quite a while. And then when it seems like uh, everyone who they're going, the, the the mummies are going to serve as an attraction to get them to come to the museum. But once they've all seen them, they're not making them any more money. They sell to a museum in Chicago, which bought by a fellow named Wood, and it's called the Wood Museum. And then during the Great Chicago Fire, that museum burns, and papyri are really, really flammable. It's kind of like you know, it's having a collection of newspapers in a fire. They don't survive, so. And we can demonstrate that they didn't survive that fire. So the large roll that all of the witnesses agree was what Joseph Smith was translating from burned in the uh, in the Great Chicago Fire. And who were some of those when you say witnesses? Do we know who it was that, you know, talked about Joseph having translated them? Yeah, and I have an article on this uh, in the Journal of Mormon History, but you've got, uh, for example, one of them is Joseph Smith III. He talks about Joseph's son. He talks about the things that his father had translated from being in that museum and burning. Most of them are guests that come to visit, and so the majority of them are actually not members of the church. There are a couple that are members of the church that hear from Joseph Smith but most of them have heard from either Joseph Smith or his mother, what he's translating from. And so you've got like Josiah Quincy and a girl who just comes uh, and visits and writes letters. And then those are published in a newspaper and, and so on. So just a variety of people, a couple of them members of the church, but mostly not. And okay. over, a, over kind of a, a, a bit of a time span. Okay. So... I wondered if you would be willing, one of the things that was most interesting to me was seeking to understand what may be meant by translation, that there are, there are different ways in which we, we can, you know, explore that, that possibly Joseph Smith was translating these things. Would you mind sharing like a couple of those theories? Yeah, I'm happy to, to do that. Uh, it's just good fun stuff. So this is the kind of thing to get into. Um, Perfect. So it, it, one of the theories is that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Abraham from the papyri in a manner very similar to what he translated the Book of Mormon from the gold plates. All right. So we've got the gold plates and that's a language written in a language Joseph Smith doesn't know, but it's a text that's actually written on those plates. And Joseph Smith translates from that text into English, 
using uh, the Urim and Thummim on a different seer stone, right? So, and quite often not looking at the plates, but sometimes looking at the plates, uh, it would seem we don't have a lot of details on that. Again, we lack data on all sorts of stuff. So if he did the same thing with the papyri, then what that means is that somewhere written on that papyri, and as I said, the, the witnesses, so we end up with some fragments, by the way. There are 11 fragments that the church now has that uh, Abel Combs, that man who bought them from Emma Smith, he'd given to his housekeeper whose daughter and then her son sold them to the Metropolitan Museum of New York, and eventually they made their way to the church. And we do have the original of facsimile one on there. The, the drawing that facsimile one is a facsimile of is on there, and there's text around that. So a number of people had kind of assumed that that's what Joseph Smith translated from, but there are several ways of testing that, including looking at these eyewitness accounts, and it becomes clear that's not what he was translating from. So uh, if he's translating from the papyrus, it's from this large roll. That's what all of them talk about. It's the large roll that ends up being in the museum that ends up burning. Um, so it, it, under this theory, that text actually exists somewhere on that large roll, and Joseph Smith is translating it via inspiration and, and you know, direct revelation from God. He may or may not be using the Urim and Thummim. The eyewitness accounts aren't completely clear on that, but he's translating them. Everyone who knows Joseph Smith and is familiar with the process uses revelatory language. You know, by direct inspiration from heaven, by the power of God, this kind of thing. They don't talk about him translating in any other way, not using alphabets or grammars or anything else. They all talk about this being inspiration. The alphabet and grammars are another really complicated story I get into just a little bit in the book. Uh, we won't want it, to, it's a lot of time, so we probably don't have time to get into it here, but uh, I can just say it's clear both from internal documents, those documents themselves and the eyewitness accounts, that's not what he's using to translate. It's, it's coming from God and maybe he's using a seer stone. In any case, so we call that the missing papyrus theory, that Joseph Smith was translating from a text that was on the papyrus that is now missing, that's now been destroyed. And so that's, and, and Joseph Smith certainly talks about translating from the papyri. So that's, a, uh, in some ways, that almost has to be a leading uh, theory just because of the historical evidence where Joseph Smith is saying that's what he's translating from and other people are saying that's what he's translating from. But there are some other theories that are very possible. And I'll tell you, it kind of depends on which day and what I've been researching lately, what, uh, what I lean towards. But one of the other most common theories is called the catalyst theory. And that's based on the idea that this process may have looked more like the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. So think of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He has a King James version of the Bible that's in English, and he's giving us an English text. But the second English text has a whole bunch of stuff in it that was never on the first English text. Because what happened is that the Bible ended up being a catalyst for Joseph Smith. He opened the Bible, and as he read it, it was a catalyst to open him up to inspiration and then revelation came to him about text that wasn't in the original text, but that God wanted us to have. And is it possible that that's what happened for Joseph Smith as he looked at the papyri, that as he looked at them, it served as a catalyst and opened him up to inspiration. And he gave us the text that God revealed to him, and he assumed it was on the papyrus. That's absolutely possible. Uh, that, that I, I think that's very, very possible. Is it possible that it's a combination of both? And, and by the way, we have just a teeny bit of evidence for that in that he once speaks of working on the alphabet and grammar and having the principles of astronomy as understood by the ancients unfolded to him. That's very revelatory language, isn't it? And that may be the explanation of facsimile too. It might be the translation of, of Abraham chapter three. It might be something else. Um, but this idea of, of working on stuff that's not even fully the papyri, but loosely connected with it, 
and having it unfold to him. That's that's pretty interesting revelatory language. And it may be a combination of them. So maybe they served, maybe it really was on the missing, the now missing papyrus, but maybe he also, they served as a catalyst to him understanding and receiving some things. Maybe that's Abraham chapter three is, and I'm just totally making this up, right? But maybe Abraham chapter three comes from pure revelation, but one and two was on the papyrus, or maybe all of one through five was on the papyrus, but the explanations for facsimile two came, and one, one and three came as pure revelation, uh, right? I think they had to have actually. Uh, so I don't know, but th- those are the two main theories. There are all sorts of little subsets of each of those theories, but the two main theories are that uh, the source was on the papyrus that's now missing or that the papyrus served as a catalyst to him receiving revelation for a text that wasn't on the papyrus at all. And I think we can kind of discard theories like, well, it's the text around facsimile one and so on. We have enough evidence. So that we do have enough evidence to discard certain things. We don't have enough evidence to make firm conclusions what it was, but we can we have evidence to say that it was not this. Okay. So 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 I think I don't know. I could listen to you talk about that all day. In your book, I really liked, you mentioned this earlier, how you not only like lay out, you know, the story, the theories, then you also talk about, you know, what we learn from the book of Abraham. And you outline from your expertise in having studied Egyptology, you outline some consistencies in the book of Abraham historically and culturally. But I loved this one sentence that you said, you said, I want to emphasize that these elements do not prove the truth of the book of Abraham. Only revelation provides surety. Instead, they demonstrate that the book certainly could be authentic. Can you talk about a few of those things and why, as someone who studied this history at length, these things could be helpful, although recognizing that revelation is the way we will gain a testimony of the book of Abraham? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, and so I'd say uh, part of what we want to, uh, I guess, understand is, is, is this plausible? Is it plausible? Is it possible that what Joseph Smith told us is is true? Because if it is, well, even if it's not revelation, it should trump everything. Because there are things that we at one point thought were completely implausible, uh, even in terms of science, that now are every day, right? I, in fact, so this will date me a little bit, but I can remember when I was young and watching uh, the original Star Trek uh, series on TV, right? Although I think it was already reruns by the time I was watching it, but. And uh, some of the things in there that seem so fantastic are we can do way more than that already now, right? Like it just seemed like, hey, that's so unrealistic that he would have this little teeny thing that could have books on it. I remember that, that episode, Captain Kirk held a little thing in his hand and, it, and he said it had like a, a whole book on this little teeny electronic device. And we're like, well, that's ridiculous. Now my iPhone has like tons of books on it, right? Uh, I mean, so things that once seemed implausible now are true. So we shouldn't let implausibility uh, ruin everything because uh, revelation can trump it. But still, I, as, a, as an academic and a historian, I uh, want to understand the plausibility of these things. And so I don't actually ever set out to, to prove this or that because it's plausible. My goal is to understand the book of Abraham. But as I research to try and understand what's going on with it, then I keep finding all sorts of stuff that make it more and more plausible. So just as an example, my, my dissertation topic, which turned into a book and all sorts of other articles and all sorts of stuff, it helped me understand. And I didn't set out about it because of this. The book of Abraham was uh, tied in, in an interesting way because 
people asked me a question that was tied to the book of Abraham. And I said, Egyptologically, no, that's just didn't happen. And then another Egyptologist showed me that that happened. I thought, oh, dang, I was wrong. I got to look at more into this and looking more into it. I found a fascinating topic and just uh, pursued it. So it turns out that the the picture of uh, the sacrifice of Abraham works really well from an Egyptological perspective. It just it just fits the circumstances, the situation, and all that kind of a thing. So I, I find that interesting. Uh, I can explore a couple of others. Here's one. This isn't one I found, but I, I would have, but someone else found it first. So a colleague of mine named John Gee did research on what we call the four sons of Horus. And in fact, similarly to, I think that's figure six, if I remember right. Anyways, these four tall guys standing off to the side. Um, and Joseph Smith says that it represents the earth and its four uh, portions or its four quarters or something along those lines. And Egyptologically, we've come to understand that uh, the four sons of Horus represent all sorts of things symbolically. But one of the things that they definitely represent is the four cardinal directions. Right. So. Well, that's pretty lucky of Joseph Smith to have guessed that, right? Uh, if he's if he's guessing, uh, I find that really interesting. I find things like uh, place names, Oli Shem. Uh, Joseph Smith gives us well, we find a place with the, a cognate equivalent of that, Ulysum, which is uh, really easily Oli Shem. We find that in ancient texts that exists in the time and the place where I would have guessed using the Book of Abraham that it existed. One of the things that I've been researching really heavily recently, and this is in the book a little bit, but I've learned a lot more since I wrote the book, is about the ancient owner of the the papyrus that facsimile one was on. And it turns out this is the kind of guy who would have been very, very interested in a text that had uh, both elements of someone being nearly destroyed but saved from destruction and uh, elements of creation. Well, the book of Abraham has exactly those things in it, right? So that makes me think, huh, this is exactly the kind of guy that would be interested. And oh, and also he's the kind of guy that would have been collecting stories about Jews or ancient Jewish stories. Uh, So, oh, this is exactly the kind of guy that would have the book of Abraham. And I find that really interesting. There are a whole bunch more things like that. In fact, the great resource for this is a website called pearlofgreatpricecentral.org. pearlofgreatpricecentral.org. Another resource is bookofabraham.org. It, it focuses on kind of all sorts of stuff, but Pearl of Centralorg really looks into all of these ancient parallels. And you'll find on there, I think it's like 30 essays that point out some of these, uh, these parallels that are very authentic, where, where you see, uh, well, here's just another quick example. When we look at stories that someone writes about their life from Abraham's time period, they take the same kind of form that Abraham's does, right? His, his writing looks like the kind of ancient writing where someone would do what he's doing. It's very authentic in that way. Um, and so there are tons of examples uh, of this that, as I said, uh, they can just be a, a confirming nudge to a faith that we've already developed. I don't want my, uh, I don't think it's possible to have deep and lasting faith that makes a change in our life based solely on our intellectual abilities. But I do think intellectual ability should be part of our worship. Um, revelation is what will ultimately confirm it. But intellectual, we worship God with our heart, might, and mind, according to the Savior in the New Testament, right? And so I think it should be part of it. But revelation will be the, the thing that makes the biggest difference. It's Nephi and Laman and Lemuel found out, right? That they... they uh, they knew, they saw an angel, but uh, that spirit didn't 
touch their hearts to make that difference that needs to happen. And so I would always urge everyone, besides pursuing this intellectually, you need to pursue it spiritually. Keep reading the text of the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and whatever else. Keep praying, and that will invite the Spirit to, to make the difference that needs to be made. As important as our mind is, and it is, it's not enough on its own. And it would be foolish of us. That's, you know, it's like trying to do something with one arm tied behind your back. If you're trying to learn and not involve the spirit in your life, that's, you know, just silly. Makes complete sense. Before we get to a couple of last questions that I have, I wondered if we could divert for a second, just because a big question that I had as I was reading your book about the book of Abraham is where did the book of Moses come from? The book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first part of Genesis. So okay. that, that's actually a fairly quick uh, and easy answer as he's, uh, when he does starts translating, he gets a lot of revelation for a lot of material that's not in our current version of Genesis. And maybe it was never in uh, the way Moses presented it to people. I don't know, but, and it was so big, he just published it separately. And so we we put that in what we call the Book of Moses. But that's just think of it as that, the Joseph Smith translation of the first part of Genesis. Okay, that makes complete sense. Okay, I wanted to ask you before we get to our last question, I watched an interview where Terrell Givens asked you, what do we have to lose as it relates to the Book of Abraham? Because I mm-hmm. think it, it feels overwhelming to some people. And so they're like, oh, I don't even want to, mess with it because what if I decide that I don't believe it, then like, what do they have to lose? And that was really interesting because you said in some ways, not a lot, but in other ways, you do have a lot to lose. I wanted to ask you, and you're welcome to elaborate on that answer, but I also wanted to ask you, what do we have to gain by seeking to gain a testimony of the book of Abraham? Great question. In some ways, that's the same question. And so I'll say, uh, in, in some ways, not a lot, and in some ways, everything. So, and the reason I say not a lot is because it's a really short book, like a really, really short book. And yet, even so, it has so much in it. So what we have to gain in, in I, 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 well, I was about to say in, in small term or small picture, but it's not, it's a big picture. What we have to gain is some of our, our most profound teachings on our relationship with God. In terms of, uh, like I said, God's, and we talked about this a little bit already, but God's uh, majesty and might, but his willingness to bring him to where he is, his willingness to covenant with us in the Abrahamic covenant, the relationship that we had with him in pre-mortality. We we get uh, probably our clearest teachings about that in the book of Abraham and God's willingness to be uh, part of our lives to save us from things that are happening in this world and to, to exalt us. Uh, all of that are beautiful, powerful teachings in the book of Abraham. But more than that, there's also this issue, especially if we're going to talk in terms of what we have to lose, is people, if people start to think, okay, well, the book of Abraham is not really scripture. Now you're talking about, well, what is Joseph Smith's prophetic status? And if you lose Joseph Smith's prophetic status, you lose the restoration. And if you lose the restoration, and I'm not saying you can't, think differently about the book of Abraham and not be a member of the church. Of course you can. We can accommodate all sorts of different beliefs. But the the danger is what often happens. And what I've seen again and again is that when you kind of open up this little, it's like putting a little teeny pinprick in the, uh, in the tire tube, right? Eventually the air gets out. 
eventually people, when they lose faith in this, then they start to lose faith in this, and then they start to lose faith in this. And if you lose faith in the restoration, you have lost, in some ways, everything. Of course, we, you can believe in Christ and not believe in the restoration, but believing in Christ in the way he is taught to us through the restoration gives us a chance for an exaltation and a peace in this life and a joy in this life that really isn't possible any other way. And I'm not saying that to to demean anyone else of any other faith or belief. I'm so grateful for all they have. And like President Hinckley, I'd say, bring what you have, and I think you can find that that we can add to it. And you can have greater peace and, and greater promises for the next life. Perfect. Carrie, thank you so much for sharing these things. My last question for you is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's actually a question of my own personal discipleship and worship I've been asking myself a lot lately. And and I usually use the phrases like consecrated, but I think it's the same thing. And so for me, it means I want what God wants. And I'm trying to become the kind of person who wants what God wants more than anything. And I want to listen to God more than anything. I want to, instead of being so heavily influenced by the world, and we all are, but I'm trying to lessen the world's influence and increase God's influence so that whatever it is he wants me to do, whatever he wants me to think and and how he wants me to think, that that's what I will do. Right, Even little things like I'm trying to make sure that the first thing I do in the morning instead of as it used to be, which is check email and read the news, is to read uh, at least a few verses of scripture um, and and take some time to just listen to God. Uh, Being all in means giving, uh, well, it's letting God prevail in the way President Nelson talked about. Letting God prevail in my life more than anything else and and letting him tell me how to think about issues like social issues and Uh, every other kind of issue rather than letting the world tell me how to think. And when I'm at that point where God is not only what I love and focus on the most, but he informs me or he, that love changes how I think about things and feel about things. Then I'm all in now. uh, I mean, hopefully I, I feel like I'm all in, even though I'm not to that point yet. Right. We have stages of this. That's the all in I'm aspiring to for, for now aspiring to it is all in. I love that. I that's one thing that with this podcast, I have wanted people to know that there are varying phases, you know, and that just because you may not be at the level of being all in that you'd like to be, you can still be all in. Mm -hmm. And um, so I appreciate your your answer so much. And thank you so much for sharing your scholarship with all of us. Because we probably aren't going to get a PhD in Egyptology, but by your you did, sharing, I you wouldn't us. get a job. So yeah, anyway, sorry, <laughs> keep, keep going. There are many jobs, but I interrupted you for a bad joke. Sorry. No, 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 you're great. Um, but, but by your, your sharing what you've learned with us, it makes us better people. So thank you very, very much. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. And, and honestly, you've helped me think more about my own consecration and, and my own uh, being happy with, where I'm at and aspiring to be more. uh, I appreciate your helping me with my discipleship. Thank you. We are so grateful to Carrie Molstein for joining us on today's episode. You can find both Let's Talk About the Book of Abraham and Learning to Love Isaiah on DeseretBook.com. 
Thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix It Six Studios for his help with this and every episode of this podcast. More than anything, thank you for listening. <laughs>